Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. In this episode, we have the pleasure of interviewing Angela Lee, Chief Innovation Officer at Columbia Business School and founder of 37 Angels, an angel investment network that trains women to invest in early stage startups. We're very excited to delve into Angela's journey and demystify startup investing. Thank you so much, Angela, for taking the time to speak with us today about your experiences with 37 Angels and at Columbia Business School. It's a pleasure to have you. To get started, it would be really helpful for us to learn about your journey into investing. What inspired you to, to be an investor? Yeah, I feel like folks always want a grandiose, like I realized that I, I was destined to be an investor and, and I became one, but that is not what happened. I did not know I was becoming an angel investor when I came one. One of my best girlfriends from middle school actually had filmed and directed a movie and she needed people to invest in the marketing and distribution rights. And I wrote a check not knowing what I was doing. It was a $5,000 check in 2008. And it was for a movie called Hiding Divya, which was all about increasing the awareness of mental health, specifically in the Asian American community, which is not a community that talks about mental health at all. And it's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. So I wanted more people to see the movie. And I didn't think about it at all as an investment. It was me helping out one of my dearest friends and me investing in a cause that I cared about and didn't make any of my money back, nor did I expect to. And then all of a sudden I was a quote unquote investor and I started getting put on email lists and invited to events and I had no idea what was happening. And so for about three to four years, that is where I hung out, was just kind of bumbling around the space, going to events, furiously writing down every other word that these people were saying, because I didn't know what any of them meant. And that was me for several years. So I wish I could say that I knew I wanted to be an investor and that's why I became one, but it was kind of a happy accident. What attracts you to investing? Is it the evaluation aspect? Is it the conversation relationship aspect? What really drew you to investing? So it's very much changed over the years, right? So I've been doing it for 12 years now. So these days, the answer is, for me, the most fun part of investing is after you invest and you really get to help the founders, because at that point, they kind of breathe a sigh of relief. You know, they've raised their round and they start asking you really interesting questions and you really get to help the founders. So for me, that is the most fun part these days. After the check is written, everyone can kind of relax and be really natural. And I get to hopefully impart some knowledge. I think I just also really love talking to founders. I am somebody who's always been an entrepreneur and to be on the other side and get to experience all of the fun of being a founder without taking on all the risk is is just really fun. Yeah. It sounds like a win-win situation for sure. Yeah. As far as 37 Angels, we'd love to hear about how it was conceived and as a founder, you were able to put it together and recruit a team. So tell us about the organization for those who don't already know about it and the mission. Yeah. So 37 Angels is a group of angel investors and we invest in early stage companies. And so every year we look at about 2,500 companies and invest in 10. And we have an investment boot camp that teaches 
specifically diverse investors, how to become angel investors. So we offer it five times a year, both in person and online, and people take it to primarily get into angel investing, although increasingly people are taking it to then get a job in venture capital. And the mission is to close the gender gap in startup investing because the numbers are not good in in startup investing. And so that was why we created it. Sure. We'll definitely touch on that aspect as I'm sure as a woman-led fund, investing in women, it's very core to your mission. But as far as hiring a team of investors and analysts to build up 37 Angels, how did you go about doing that and inspiring them to follow suit in your vision of 37 Angels? So I think I would separate out the team and the angels. So from the angels perspective, we now have about 85 angels that are members of the network. And the way that we indoctrinate them to the culture of 37 angels is really through our bootcamp. So our bootcamp is probably 80% content, right? How do you actually be an investor? How do you value startups? How do you diligent startups? But about 20% of it is here's the culture of 37 angels. Here's the process of 37 angels. How do we inspire our angels to uphold our culture of empathy, transparency, efficiency, and help? And so that's on the angel side. On the team side, I am really lucky that I'm a professor at Columbia Business School. I teach venture capital courses there, and I am able to observe students oftentimes in my class, whatever the case may be. And so by the time it comes to interviewing them for the role, I know them quite well. And I, at this point, have a pretty good interview process where I feel like I don't just get a sense of people's ability, which is obviously important, but I would argue being a good fit for 37 Angels is 50% ability and 50 percent culture fit. So I feel like I have a pretty good way of sussing that out through the interview process these days. For sure. It's great that you have access to all of these networks over time, I guess, in New York, where everyone's knowing everyone in such a small space, especially if it's women leaders. That's great to hear. But pivoting to more qualitative aspects of leadership, and I'm sure you've seen many students, many investors, many entrepreneurs. What do you think makes a good leader? Yeah. I'm going to start off with the manager definition first and then maybe expand to be a good leader. But I think as a good manager, there are three things you need to do really well. The first is to encourage your team to stay in the growth zone. So what I mean by that is as humans, we all have a comfort zone, a growth zone, and a panic zone. And it's very easy to stay in your comfort zone because it's comfortable. And a bad manager will push you into your panic zone and be like, I'm completely unsupported here. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I think a good manager lets you live in that growth zone. That's one thing that I really try to push my team, which is they're always learning and growing, but not at a point where they feel panicked or wildly uncomfortable. But that nice, it's like the, a good burn from like being in the gym and, and lifting weights that are like pushing you but not breaking anything. So that would be one. The second thing is from an ethos perspective, I think leaders and managers should be taking blame and giving credit. I see a lot of leaders who are very threatened by people who are younger than them and brighter than them. And I'm midpoint in my career these days. And it's interesting, like for a long time, I was the young whippersnapper in the room. I was always super young for the roles that I had and really rewarded for like, oh, you're young, you're so young and you've accomplished so much. I don't hear that anymore because I'm middle-aged. And so there's this threatening feeling for some, I think some managers feel and some leaders feel that they're not that person anymore. And it's no longer your job to be the best coder or the best model developer or the best whatever. It's your job to foster that next group. And that transition is a tough one for a lot of people to make, but I think that's what makes a good leader is to not be threatened by those that are junior to you and to, again, give credit and make your team look even more awesome than they are. And I think the last thing is all about a mindset of managing, which is that there's this weird lie that managers and direct reports tell each other, which is that 
I'm going to work here for the next 10 years of my life. And that's just simply not true, right? The data shows that most people change jobs every couple of years. Yet it's this huge surprise where someone tells you that they're leaving and then you have two weeks to do all this knowledge transfer. Um, And Reid Hoffman wrote a book called The Alliance. He's the founder of LinkedIn. And it's all about, let's just be honest. We are all probably going to be together for 18 to 24 months. In that time, my job as a manager and leader is to develop you, to make you get that next dream job of yours. But in the meantime, your job is to give your all for those 18 to 24 months and to take a responsibility for some of that knowledge transfer. And I find that organizations who do that really, really well becomes more powerful and the people who work within it go on to do really, really awesome things. So my job as a manager and leader is fostering these little seedlings and then I set them off onto the world and I... I'm really lucky that the people that I managed 15 years ago, I'm still really, really close to them. They still come to me for advice. And I think it's because there was never any resentment when they left. And if anything, I helped them to find their next job. So those are three tenants that I live behind as a manager and leader. Angela, you mentioned that 37 Angels was conceived for a particular mission, and it's to close the gender gap in startup investing. And you said also that numbers aren't looking great. I was wondering if you had any specific stats you could share with us to help paint the picture. Yeah. So on the angel investing side, when we started in 2012, 13% of angel investors were women. Eight years later, we are now at about 18%, depending on what data you look at. On the venture capital side, investing professionals in the venture capital world, it's like 4% women. So the gender stats are definitely not good on both the VC and angel side. Wow. 4% in VC. That's crazy. So about this gender gap, there was a study done by Donna Kanzi. Yeah. From it Columbia. seems like you're aware of it. Yes. And so Donna Kanzi found that there's actually a gender gap in the founders side as well, not just on the investing side. So the founders who are female get asked different questions than the male founders. Yeah. Yeah. So they ask investors, regardless of their gender, ask female founders prevention-based questions and ask male founders promotion-based questions. Prevention-based questions are, how will you prevent Google from stealing your market share? Promotion questions are, how are you going to become the next billion-dollar unicorn? And so advice I always give to female founders is if you get asked a prevention-based question, answer it because you have to answer the question asked and then answer the promotion-based question they didn't ask you. I see. Yeah, you definitely put it better than I did. But I was also wondering, in the boot camp that you run or the group of next generation angel investors that you raise through 37 Angels, is that something you try to instill in them in terms of these are the questions that you need to be aware that you're asking as an investor or any other advice that you give them? Absolutely. So I do a fair amount of corporate training these days on the topic of inclusion. And so clients are like Kraft Heinz, Pfizer, Amazon, Vanguard. And I do a lot of this work with them. And whenever I do training around inclusion, which I definitely do both at 37 Angels, but also in my class at Columbia, we basically talk about three things, awareness, systems, and data. So from an awareness perspective, I do think it's important for everybody to go through unconscious bias training and to think about the microaggressions you're saying on a daily basis and the words that you shouldn't shouldn't be including in your daily language. So the story I often tell is I teach a strategy class based off of my experience at McKinsey. And I have a case that I kick off the class with where I'm role-playing the CEO of this company and the students have to give me advice. And literally, I've had students come up to me at the front of the classroom, shake my hand and say, good morning, Mr. CEO. 
and it's me, right? And the bias is so strong that looking at a woman and shaking her hand, but I'm CEO, so they'll say, good morning, Mr. CEO. And it's crazy. And they don't even realize they're doing it. Sometimes you'll hear some snickers, but not as many as you would expect, right? So that unconscious bias, I think it's really important for people to have awareness of that. For those of you who are listening, if you haven't taken the Harvard Implicit Association Test, I highly encourage you to. And the Implicit Association Test is called exactly that because it's basically around what concepts and words do you associate together? So the most popular one is on gender. So trying to pair words together. And what it's trying to say is, do you associate women and female with caregiver, home, cook? And do you associate the male words with power, work, boss? Now, I am somebody who has dedicated a very large portion of my life to eradicating um, all sorts of bias, but certainly gender bias. Yet I have gender bias. And I've literally taken the test four times. And I'm like, I'm going to pass this test. There's no way that I have gender bias, but I do. Because when I was little, I watched George Jetson and the Flintstones. And I don't even know if any of any of the listeners will know what those cartoons are. But it, the men went off to work and the women stayed at home and took care of the kids. And so those biases are in my brain. And so I think point number one is awareness. We all have these biases. Let's just make ourselves aware of them. So then the second thing to overcome them, so you do not overcome bias with saying, stop being biased. It's really, really hard. It's like telling a right-handed person to be left-handed. What you do instead is to build systems in place. And so when we invest in startups, we actually ask them to sign a diversity pledge. And so we ask them to have inclusive hiring practices. So for example, around recruiting, around hiring, around retention, I'm happy to share some of those tools. And it's all about building in systems. So for example, when we look at applications, Gus doesn't have photos. And so we're not, for the most part, being able to tell someone's race or whatever the case may be. We actually do our first meeting over the phone. So any visual cues are adding to our bias. So whatever you can do to systemically remove bias, there are a lot of tools these days that remove the demographic information from a resume, for example, like the higher view and Blendor where you can't see the person's name or photo, so you can't tell what race or gender they are. So that is a system to reduce bias. And then the last thing is to see how you're doing using data. So for 37 Angels, we look at our inbound pipeline of 2,500 companies. We look at who we pre-screen. We look at who we invest in to see where we're falling short. And the combination of those three things as a positive feedback cycle is the only way I think that you can get better at this because it's really hard. Yeah, I think the three things, awareness, system, and data that you just shared with us is very tangible things that you can change, which I really like because 2020 has been quite a year. And this topic definitely came around many times, especially in the corporate setting when things came to light. So although there's been many conversations, I didn't feel like there were many things that you could try and change immediately. It was just talking about qualitative things, what are some issues that we have at hand, and just conversations, which are important as well. But when you don't have things that people know this is exactly what I can do to change this, it's difficult to bring about change. So this is awesome. 
And um, this last note um, slash question I have on um, gender gap is one thing that we've been thinking about a lot at Thea is including men in the process of uh, closing the gender gap. We don't think it's going to be successful just trying to have a conversation within women and trying to make change as just a woman-centered group. We definitely need to bring everyone, every stakeholder into the room to make this change. So I was wondering, how does 37 Angels approach this topic? We do have a few male investors. Our network is probably 80 women and five men, which is pretty similar to the ratio in most venture capital firms in the other way. And we have them go through the exact same training, but I do think there is something powerful about having men as allies in this, just like at Columbia Business School, we have a group called Cluster Q, which is really focused on the LGBTQ community. And they are really, really effective at bringing allies into that conversation. Because I think the problem with having only the disenfranchised group talk to each other is you, A, get a bit of an echo chamber, and B, you're only talking to each other. And at the end of the day, we need to make sure that the people who are in positions of power and positions of leadership to feel bought into these things as well. So for example, I will never do corporate training if the only person I'm talking to is the head of the affinity group. I will only do the corporate training if I'm talking to the head of the business group or the CEO or some senior person who's at the C-suite level, we care about this as a problem versus we're just gonna have the affinity group care about the problem. Let's talk about demystifying startup investing. So as you had alluded to earlier with the statistics, I think 18% of angel investors are women, 4% are women in VC. So why do you think that there's that discrepancy there? Do you think angel investing might be a better way for women to get involved and engaged in investing? So let's separate out kind of angel investing and venture capital. So I think the gender gap in venture capital, there are a couple of reasons. The first is that the way venture capital works is it's not like a law firm or a consulting firm where there's a natural path up up, and it's six years to partner, eight years to partner. That's not the way it works in venture. The way it works in venture is that the only way for partnership roles to be created is that the fund has to raise a new fund or somebody has to retire and or leave. And so what happens for a lot of people, not just women, is that there's a very clear ceiling of how senior you can get. And if you look at the partners, if you think about all the famous names in venture, they're like 45. They're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's really hard to change when the senior people, by definition, aren't going anywhere and there isn't natural turnover of leadership. So venture, there's just systemic issues with the way a venture fund is structured in terms of the governance of a venture fund, of why there hasn't been kind of a changing of the guard, and it is going to take time. And venture's actually gotten worse in the last decade, shockingly, around gender. So that's on the venture side. And there's obviously nepotism as well. People tend to hire people who look like them. So that's on the venture side. On the angel side, I think it's a little bit different, which is that there's probably, I would say, two main contributors. One is that the vast majority of women don't take ownership over their finances. Women who are managing directors at Goldman Sachs will often still defer to their oftentimes male partner um, around 
household finances. And so that idea of financial empowerment is one of the reasons why I actually created 37 Angels, because I just saw all these brilliant women who were brilliant professionally at managing, you know, billion dollar hedge funds, yet would often defer to people around household finances. So I think that's one. And the second thing is that women are much more susceptible to imposter syndrome. There was a very famous HBS study that was done that showed that men will apply to a job description if they are checking off like six of the 10 qualifications, but women won't apply until they've checked off nine or 10 of the boxes. And by definition, we're all underqualified to be an angel investor, right? We're investing in nascent companies in brand new industries that nobody really knows about, and nobody really knows how to be an angel investor. And it's very hard to develop this skill. So all of us are underqualified, especially at the beginning. And so women are less likely to lean into that discomfort of, I don't really know what I'm doing. And so I'd say those are the two primary reasons on the angel investing side. I think it also goes back to your discussion about the growth zone versus the panic zone or comfort zone and that we all, not only just women, but we all need to push ourselves. And I guess my mentality from the start is, especially when you're young and you're able to take a bit of risk relative to someone who's more established and has other obligations of personal, professional, et cetera. Now is the time to take advantage of the day and start investing. So as a 25-year-old who's interested in particularly healthcare-related ventures, how do you go about advising us? Give us the abridged version of your boot camp when it comes to selecting a, a nice portfolio for a healthcare investor, for example. Yeah. So speaking to new investors, and again, this is the same framework I use when speaking to founders as well. So we break it into the four Ps in terms of what we look for, which is people, problem, progress, and price. People are the team. So is it, if it, they need to deeply understand the therapeutic area that they're in, or is it more of a digital health platform and understanding the therapeutic area is less important? Is there a chief medical officer? Just do they have the domain expertise to be building it? That's one. And then the second is complementary skill sets. I don't like seeing a team of all doctors, just like I don't like seeing a team of all former teachers or all data scientists. We want diversity on the team in all ways, whether it's age, gender, race, but also skill set. So I would say that like on the people side, it's really that domain expertise and then complementary team, uh, team makeup. On the problem side, we want a really large problem. So it needs to be large enough that the company can get really, really big. Because at the end of the day, in venture capital and angel investing, for us to have the exits we need, the problem needs to get really, really big. And the second thing is, does the founder understand the problem and the customer? Too often, I find that people come and they're like, here's my product. Here are the 17 features it has. And the question I always ask is, let's say I am a nurse practitioner and I'm talking to a nurse practitioner at another private practice, what would he or she say to their friend? And we don't say like, you should use this new app because here are the 17 features. That's not how we talk to each other. We say, you need this because this is going to make insurance billing so much easier. That's like, do you truly understand the problem you're solving for the customer? Do you truly understand your customer? And especially in healthcare, customer empathy is so, so, so important. Do you understand what the doctor gets out of it, what the nurse gets out of it, what the patient gets out of it, what the caregiver gets out of it, what the insurance company gets out of it, the hospital? If you don't understand the entire ecosystem and truly have customer empathy, you cannot be successful, especially for a US-based medical company. So that's problem. Progress, obviously some degree of traction is nice, especially if you have a repeatable process to keep getting more traction. And then price, the valuation and terms need to be fair. So people, problem, progress, price. 
Very helpful. And assuming that you're interested in a given venture, you like the solution, you like the team, how would you proceed in terms of investing formally? Of course, we all have different amounts of money we can invest, but how would you advise us to think about general framework for investing in order to be able to potentially get a return? Yeah. So I think the first thing to decide as an investor is how much control you want to have over the investment. So the most control in the world is a solo investor. And that's what I was from 2008 to 2012. I was going out there talking to founders and making my own decisions. Then you can join an angel network, right? So the way 37 Angels works and the way most angel networks work is that me and my team, we look at 2,500 companies and we curate it down to the best 50 and we introduce those to our angels. And then at that point, the angels vote on their favorites diligence and have all autonomy over what they invest in, but they are trusting us to curate 2,500 companies down to 50. And then the least amount of control is that you are an investor in a venture capital fund, in which case you're saying, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Venture Capital Partner, I trust you to invest my money, just like putting your money into a mutual fund. And then you have no control. So I think the first decision is how much control do you want to have? And there's no right or wrong answer. I've been in all three of those categories. So that's what I would say. And then it is how much money do you want to put aside? And my recommendation is no more than 5 to 10% of your investable assets should be in this asset class because it is highly risky. And then the last thing is diversification. So I would not even enter into the ecosystem unless I was prepared to invest in 10 startups because diversification does work. And so you can't just write one check and walk away. It really is about investing in 10 companies more is better. So I'm in 25 companies as an individual. And then I'm also an LP in three funds. So I'm probably in another 75 companies through that. You have to get diversification. How would you advise someone who's very busy, say a medical resident or a consultant at McKinsey? How would you sort of go about managing your time if you want to balance this and work on angel investing over time? So there's probably two ways that I would advise them. One, if you just want to put money into this asset class, I would say give your money to a general partner who you trust and just let them manage that part of your portfolio for you. Just like most of us probably aren't picking individual stocks to invest in or trusting a mutual fund manager, or maybe we're investing in a basket of stocks like an ETF. I think there's been a huge trend towards passive investing. So that'd be one path, which is the least amount of time. The other way is, to, is through equity crowdfunding. And the reason why I like equity crowdfunding is it allows you to invest in more companies for a smaller check amount. So if you're doing direct angel investing, most founders won't take less than a $25,000 check. But if you go on to Seed Invest or Circle Up, one of many equity crowdfunding sites, you can put $1,000 into a company and invest in many more companies for a much smaller dollar amount. And you have more limited information. You're not spending a month diligencing the founder. You are maybe watching a two-minute video. You are reading a pitch deck and you're hitting click to invest. It's maybe a 30-minute exercise versus a month-long exercise. Yes, you're doing less diligence, but because the check sizes are smaller, you're not overly exposing yourself to risk. So as a way to just start and dip your toe, I think equity crowdfunding is a great way to go.
of the students that you teach or just in business school, the trends that you see right now, what we are aware of is many people prefer to find a job in the corporate world out of the business school. But as Thea and, and also just personally as well, we believe that in order to kind of make the real change in the healthcare issues that we see, entrepreneurship is actually better poised to make that difference, although it's a very risky path just career-wise. So I wanted to hear about your take on this and if you do anything from your perspective to encourage students to explore entrepreneurship while in business school and afterwards. Yeah. So a couple of things. I think that just defining what it means to be an entrepreneur, I literally have a slide about all the different ways you can be an entrepreneur. And there are ways to be an entrepreneur in corporate. One of my first jobs was uh, I was a new product manager. I was developing new products and that was being an entrepreneur. I hate the word, but it is relevant working in corporate innovation. So like Vanguard has a studio, it's called their innovation studio. And you could be a mini entrepreneur with the corporate backing. There's corporate venture capital right now is 20% of venture capital. So I think the idea that it doesn't have to be so black or white and to have people think about the entire spectrum of what is entrepreneurship. And there is a way to exercise that creativity muscle while still matching with your risk appetite. Because I think we all have different risk appetites and that's okay. So I think that's what is really expanding the definition and making people aware of the entire spectrum of opportunities of being a startup founder. Also, you don't have to be the founder. You can be employee number 75 in a series B funded company, which has a lot less risk than being the founder. So that's on the spectrum side. And then I think it is the world's role and something that Columbia is trying to do is how do we decrease the risk for founders? So how do we make it easier for students to maybe have student loan forgiveness if they're going into a certain world? Like the Canadian government has done really good things to make it easier for people to both invest in startups from a taxation perspective, but also they have all of these grants for founders. They match a lot of investor salary. They have free office space. There's a lot that the government and the broader infrastructure can do to decrease the risk for people to go and try to change the world. That's amazing that they are able to do that. That's definitely a systemic change. If I were under that system, I would be more encouraged to explore that path. But we also agree with the definition of entrepreneurship, how it's not black or white, and it's definitely a big gray zone that you can explore entrepreneurship in. So thank you for bringing that up. Great. So we wanted to thank you again, Angela, for taking the time to speak with us today. Just have one last question for you. We would just love to hear any parting words you have as an investor, a professor, or entrepreneurs who are thinking about pitching to 37 angels or firing investors who maybe want to participate in your boot camp. What is your advice to the younger generation of those who want to impact change, whether through entrepreneurship or venture capital? Yeah. So um, if you want to take our bootcamp, it's 37angels.com forward slash bootcamp. But my advice for people, regardless of what part of the ecosystem you're in, is to invest in your network. I think that especially young women, we're really good at building networks, but we're not good at leveraging our networks. And so asking for help and investing in the power of your network, I think is really important. And so two books that I recommend to everybody, one is Give and Take, which is all about giving to your network. Um, And then the other is Multipliers, which is amplifying the awesome of your network. And I do find that these days, because of FOMO, because of seeing your friends succeed on social media, 
there's sometimes an inclination to hoard, which is, oh, I have this really cool resource. I'm not going to share it with people because if I share it with people, then somehow I'm less powerful. And I think try to turn that instinct on its head and to be like, I am going to make my network more awesome. I'm going to cheerlead them when they win a Forbes Under 30 award. I'm going to share all the amazing resources I have. And I think investing in that network, it's never a wrong thing to do. And it's always going to make you more powerful in the end. And at the end of the day, it's going to make the next 20, 30, 40 years of your life that much more fun because you're going to love how awesome your network is. And it's being a good person, which is, you know, both the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. And so invest in your network is the piece of advice I would give. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park and Asim Jain. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.